Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let us begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, this evening, this beautiful place in which we live and this beautiful opportunity for community so that we can dive into your word and allow you to speak to us. We come here tonight, Lord, to learn, yes, but above all, to encounter you and to grow in our relationship with you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, give us the answers to the questions that we seek. Console us in our doubts, in our grief, in our sorrow. Guide us in the midst of our worry and our decisions. Give us ease in our anxiety. And we pray, Lord, anything that might be distracting us tonight, that we would just lay those things at your feet and ask that your will be done, that you would rebuke any attack of the enemy and cast it out in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we offer this time to you, that you would bless it, anoint it, and bless each one of us in the ways we most need it. Send your Holy Spirit upon us to guide our conversation and our study, and we ask the Blessed Mother to intercede on our behalf as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in, have a seat, join a table. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 13. Verses 24 to 43. So, this is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time. We're picking up where we left off last week. So, as a reminder, we are in the middle of the third teaching section of the Gospel of Matthew, and that third teaching section is called the Parable Discourse. And it consists mostly of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is in the Sea of Galilee area, and he is teaching uh, disciples and crowds sitting down in a boat, and last week we had the parable of the sower planting different seeds, and we are continuing in the midst of other agricultural style parables tonight. Uh, the parable of the weeds among the wheat, parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, and an explanation of the parable of the weeds. And so we're continuing this teaching style of Jesus uh, as we begin together tonight in Matthew 13, verse 24. So we're going to read this twice through. We're going to read verses 24 to 43. And as we do, I invite you this first time, paint this picture. So picture Jesus, he's sitting in a boat right off the shore of the Sea of Galilee, teaching crowds of disciples and followers, and teaching them in the form of parables. So we just, pretend you were just at Mass yesterday. You heard the parable of the sower, and it explained, and it continues tonight. In verse 24 of Matthew 13, Jesus says, or Jesus, he proposed another parable to them. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds all through the wheat and then went off. When the crop grew and bore fruit, the weeds appeared as well. The slaves of the householder came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where have the weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. His slaves said to him, do you want us to go and pull them up? He replied, no, if you pull up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until harvest. Then at harvest time, I will say to the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles for burning, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus proposed another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a person took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, yet when full grown, it is the largest of plants. It becomes a large bush, and the birds of the sky come and dwell in its branches. He spoke to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of wheat flour until the whole batch was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. 
He spoke to them only in parables to fulfill what had been said through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will announce what has lain hidden from the foundation of the world. Then, dismissing the crowds, Jesus went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus said in reply, He who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed, the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Just as weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all who cause others to sin and all evildoers. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where they will be wailing, there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears ought to hear. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, second time through now, we're going to read this passage once again. And this time, now you get a picture for what Jesus is teaching here. You maybe had an image in your mind of him sitting there in the crowds, or you saw these parables kind of being painted like pictures in your head. Whatever the image you have, now I want you to focus directly on the words as they are read. You can close your eyes or follow along in your Bible, and listen particularly for any word or detail that stands out to you, jumps off the page, and resonates with you personally. You don't have to know what it means. It doesn't have to have any intellectual or theological interpretation based on the context of the passage, but it just strikes you. It can be any word, any detail, any phrase. Pay attention to those things, reflect on them, and ask, why is this standing out to me? What are you trying to say to me, Lord, through this particular detail? So final time through, Matthew 13, starting verse 24. Jesus proposed another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds all through the wheat, and then went off. When the crop grew and bore fruit, the weeds appeared as well. The slaves of the householder came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where have the weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. His slaves said to him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? He replied, No. If you pull up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until harvest. Then at harvest time, I will say to the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles for burning, but gather the wheat into my barn. He proposed another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a person took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, yet when full grown, it is the largest of plants. It becomes a large bush, and the birds of the sky come and dwell in its branches. He spoke to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of wheat flour until the whole batch was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. He spoke to them only in parables to fulfill what had been said through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will announce what has lain hidden from the foundation of the world. Then dismissing the crowds, Jesus went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He said in reply, He who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed, the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Just as weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all who cause others to sin and all evildoers. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears ought to hear. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ.
So another longer passage. I want to invite you to take a few moments to look over the passage and the things that stood out to you. Again, it was Matthew 13, 24 to 43. And reflect on those things as well as any questions that uh, arose within you as we read this reading. And we'll take about the next 10 minutes or so at the tables you're at to discuss. So if you're at a smaller table, feel free to join. There's room up here um, and discuss what stood out to you and why, any questions that you have. And then we'll bring it back together uh, in larger discussion in the group. So if you're watching this later, let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, take the next 10 minutes. So we're continuing with Jesus in this parable, this discourse of parables. And if you remember last week, the parable was about what we do in response to the seeds that are being planted in our life. We're all so excited about the passage. I'm glad. So what are we doing in response to the seeds that are being planted in our life? That, that's kind of last week's parable. So this continues. And yet it kind of makes a different point. We have three different parables here back to back, one of which is explained, but not until the other two parables in between are given. So it's kind of almost disheveled or puzzle pieced together. But I think to encapsulate all of this in one sentence would be that it's, it's never too late. It's never too late to turn back to the Lord or turn to the Lord for the first time because God can do incredible things with your small, simple yes. It's never too late. Recognize this, in the parable of the weeds among the wheat, we have this, and this was an agricultural reality and a parable. So this weed that's used here, we actually have the word for it in the original Greek. It's zizania, and it's, the, it's called beaded darnel, or bearded darnel. And it's a, a particular type of weed that when it starts to grow, it looks exactly like wheat. You cannot tell the difference between this weed and wheat. And so you have to let it grow. But once it gets to the point where it's distinguishable, its roots have intertwined with all of the wheat around it. And you cannot pull it up. Or you will uproot all the wheat around it. You will lose your entire harvest. And so you have to wait until the very end. And when you harvest, you take a sickle to all of the wheat. You bring it in to uh, your, the threshing floor, to the place where you're going to separate it. And you use a... a, 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 a what's it called, a winnowing fan or a sickle, and you cut apart all of these wheat, all of the wheat. And the, the wheat itself is heavy, and it falls to the ground, and the chaff that's left, the lighter parts of, the, of the, the plant, they blow away in the wind. And so all you're left with, finally, is this wheat. But you have to be very meticulous in the way you separate these, because if you get even a little of this weed in your wheat, it corrupts the entire taste. It's very bitter to the taste, and it's slightly toxic as well. So just one bit of this weed, once you crush it down into flour and then you try and bake bread, the entire harvest is gone. And so you see this analogy here. This was not only you know, a parable, but as I said, it, this was an agricultural reality. There was a law in Roman law against planting this because it was so invasive. It would take over entire fields. It would make you know, farmers completely destitute. It would overrun the agriculture of the area. And so it was against the law in Roman areas to even plant this. And this was a thing that, you, that was commonly done to sabotage people that you wanted to get back at or who you were in competition with economically to ruin their harvest. You would go sprinkle these seeds or plant this weed in their field in the middle of the night because it would completely, very likely, uh, mean that they, they had no harvest that was um, you know, able to be used. It's so hard to meticulously separate. And Jesus teaches us in this parable Kind of this reality that we lived in, we live in one big messed up dysfunctional church family. You know, they say any dysfunctional family is a family that has more than one person in it. <laughs> then you have a dysfunctional family. And so the church is like that. And we can get very divisive, we can get very uh, frustrated, temperamental about other people in the church or the ways that certain people in the church do things. And we can get frustrated, like, why aren't things different? Why aren't things going to change? Or when we see other people falling into sin, or we see society going in a particular direction, we kind of have this tendency to want to draw hard lines in the sand and put up these walls and say, okay, we need to protect ourselves and our own and pursue this life of holiness and kind of get rid of the world because the world is bad. And Jesus here is saying, like, God's not going to do that. He's not. He's going to wait until the very end because what happens next in the parables? Examples of how even the littlest act 
the littlest gesture, the littlest moment, the person who looks so unexpected to be a saint in their sinfulness, their smallest desire to convert, incredible fruitfulness and abundance can come from that. And so we don't want to, God doesn't want to harvest that too early, to uproot the weeds and throw out all these sinners too early. And we shouldn't have that desire either because we are all sinners. We have to ask ourselves, like, am I the weed or the wheat today? Am I worthy of being in this field? Or am I kind of rooting myself and, and tearing other people down and, and kind of growing almost like behind enemy lines and not letting this thing that's festering in me, this sin, get dealt with by the Lord? So he's very direct and very truthful, but then he, he goes into these other two very short parables to say, even though God will do this at the end of time, he will harvest between the weeds and the wheat. All you need is that small seed. All you need is that little leaven. All you need is that simple yes every single day to say, all right, Lord, I'm going to do my best to faithfully follow you today. An incredible abundance can come from that. So he tells us in the end what this means and all the symbolism. But I think it's also a great example of, you know, the, these, uh, the, the servants of the master come to him and say, why is this happening? Didn't you sow good seed? And can't you hear in that people who ask, didn't God make everything good? So why are bad and evil things happening? And Jesus, we ask this question all the time. It's like one of the, the number one questions in the human experience. And Jesus answers it so simply, an enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. He says it plainly. An enemy has done this. So do we go pull it all out? Do we get rid of it? No, wait. Wait until the end. Jesus here is saying that the path to sainthood is not a sharp tongue, a strong opinion, setting yourself apart from society. It's not a particular theological leaning or liturgical preference, how you worship. No, the path to sainthood is patience and forgiveness. Patience and forgiveness. And isn't it so interesting that when we don't focus on those things, we end up in these situations where we get very divided and we start infighting. And what do we lack? Patience and forgiveness. The two things that could fix all of this infighting and these problems are the real sources of sainthood. And that's what Jesus here is saying. He uses these agricultural parables because gardening takes work, it takes time, it takes patience. I don't know how many of you garden, but you know, it's not just this like pretty stop motion video that you see for five seconds online with a flower blooming. Like it's painstaking time on your hands and your knees in the dirt, watching things wilt and die and be scorched by the sun and trying again, learning as you go and having this patience for this little amount of fruit. During COVID, I ate an avocado. I ate many avocados, but I ate an avocado. I did what everyone else did. I put toothpicks in it and I put it in a cup of water and I wanted a root to grow. And I saw root grow, and I planted it in the ground, and now I have an avocado sapling that is taller than me. And next to my children and my marriage, this is the most precious thing to me in my life. <laughs> because I have a vision now of like 18 years from now when it's finally able, or maybe not 18, but like 12 years from now when it's finally able to bear fruit, to be able to look at my kids and be like, I ate this avocado that grew this tree. <laughs> you know, and it's a lesson like, if you do small things with great love, look what will happen. You know, I'm just waiting for this lifelong analogy to come to fruition. But it's true, it's painstaking, patient labor. And we have to be very forgiving and patient in moments or in environments that can be very unforgiving. You know, the laws of nature are unforgiving. You know, just because you're saying, like, please grow, nature's not going to be like, okay. You know, it's just gonna be like, no, you know, this plant's going to die. You know, it's not up to you. But what God does is he's merciful. And he is patient and he is forgiving and he waits until the very last moment. He gives us every chance, every opportunity, every resource, everything that we could possibly need to know his love and to know enough to respond to him in faith. And all we need is that small seed, that little leaven, and it can change everything. A little leaven. That's it. And so what is that little act in your life and in mine? What can we do today and tomorrow to get one step closer. I say this all the time, but I think we have to be forgiving of ourselves and not be so impatient to get to the end goal of being holy. Sometimes we have this idea like, this is the saint I wanna be, and I'm so far from it that we get impatient and we get down on ourselves and we get self-conscious or we get worried or we put up this mask or whatever it is. You don't have to get to 100% sainthood tomorrow. But what you have to do today is acknowledge what percent are you at? 
And if you say, all right, I'm 13%, and my challenge to you is, all right, be 13.1% tomorrow. Just a little bit closer. And once you can perfect that, 13.2, 14%, whatever it takes to just make that small effort. And if you get knocked back, if you get knocked down, don't focus on that. Focus on that small effort, that act of reconciliation, coming back to God, whether it's in confession, deeper prayer, deeper virtue, good spiritual habits, to continue being faithful. Because he will always be faithful to us till the very end. But we can't wait too long because once that end moment comes, Jesus is clear. This is what will happen. There will be a separation, a point of no return where our decision will have been made, and we don't know when that's going to come, whether it's the last day of our life or the last day of all life, whichever comes first for us. We don't know when it will happen. And so are we ready? Are we distinguishing ourselves and saying, I want to be one of the wheat? So how can I make those little mustard seed acts, those little leaven actions every day to show God that I'm putting in the effort so that that faithfulness can become fruitfulness? What are some things that stood out to you? What questions do you have about this reading? Yes? Okay, um, one of the things on this, and it just came to me today, um, verse 28, an enemy has done this. Yes. It just is so remarkable that that leans up against like the St. Michael prayer about the evil spirits who prowl about the world looking for the ruining of souls. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wow, and then you go back to the top of this parable, and then you're like, hey, you know, here's all this good spoil, everybody's thriving on it, and here comes these weeds. And that's one of those things when people say, well, God's so great, why does he let bad people do this and that? It's like, well, here it is right here. Yeah. Live side by side, and at the end, it's going to, you know, weed itself out. Yeah. Yeah, he's not the only one at work. Yeah. In our life and in the world. We have to recognize there's not just one sower, there's two. And so discerning, I was praying about this today, how to learn the difference between discerning, is this my voice, is this God's voice, or is this the enemy's voice? And that's a lifelong lesson in prayer. Once we can properly identify the Father's voice, that's when we've really grown substantially in prayer. But it takes daily practice, daily habits of listening to the Father's voice so that we can better recognize it. If I'd never heard my father speak, and then suddenly I went out into the world, I'm going to go find my birth father, and I'm just going to listen until I recognize his voice. I would never find him. That'd be ridiculous. But if I had audio tapes, and I had voice, vocal recognition software, and there were different ways that I could listen to people's conversations and their recordings, and I could match them, then yes, I would find it probably a whole lot, a whole lot more quickly. If I'm in the habit of hearing his voice then I will grow in that. But I have to recognize there is an enemy. It's like, I think if First Peter says, the enemy is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we have to be conscious of that. Like the, the devil has been beaten. We have no reason to fear him. I saw uh, some, someone say this recently. I heard or, or saw them posted on something that said, uh, it was Mark Hart, the Bible geek from Life Team. He said, uh, if the devil is reminding you of your past, remind him of his future. Mike Trump. Yes. Well, one thing that makes me about, like, um, I thought this really stood out to me when we were talking, is like um, reading through the Bible and like understanding what he says is like understanding the brand of Jesus and like how he talks is like a better way to understand his voice in your own heart. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that, was, that just really stood out to me. I was like, mm, yeah, I love that. Like, daily practice, just reading through the Bible and like how he's speaking, kind of understand it for yourself. So, yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it, especially if you have like you know. Uh, let's say a brand or something that you're really like passionate about or something that you really love to do. And then all of a sudden you hear something in the media of like, oh, so-and-so from this brand said that they're going in this direction. Be like, no, that can't be true. Like, cause I know what they're about. I know what their vision is. I know what their mission is. Like that has to be a lie. You know, the same thing is true with Jesus. If we understand the mission of Jesus, of his vision, of his teaching, not the Jesus who we think we get, for, we inherit from secular culture or we inherit from the world, but the Jesus of scripture, if we know him, then we'll know if something sounds on-brand or off-brand for Jesus very easily. Other questions, things? Yeah, Richard. Um, why did God give Satan lordship of earth? Why did he give him lordship of earth? 
Uh, he didn't. No, because God is the Lord of the earth. But the earth is also the devil's playground. He gives him permission to dwell here. And we can become subject to the what the scripture calls, I think in Ephesians chapter 2, the power of the ruler of the air, or, or of Satan. Because this is the battleground. What God does is he gives free will, permission for us to act either in response to his love or in defiance of his love. And he will not inter interfere in ways that will supersede that free will. So he created the universe for us. And he created the angels with roles in the universe for us. Simply because the devil rebelled and he was already part of that universe, he now is rebelling within it because that's where his role was meant to be fulfilled. But it's not his. That's why at the end of time, it's, this universe will not be destroyed. It will be redeemed, and out of it will come a new heaven and a new earth. It will be transformed. It won't be abandoned. Well, did, you know, when he, when he tempted Jesus, he said he put on top of the mountains that God will give you all his kingdoms. Yes, he did say that. He's also a liar. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important thing about discerning the devil's voice is he tends to not tell the truth. <laughs> he tends to over-exaggerate his ability to uh, meet some of those promises that he, he offers. I'm glad you said that because I have, an, I have another sermon this weekend mm -hmm. okay, that talked about the devil's worship of the earth mm -hmm. from a whole different perspective. Yes, and, and there is accuracy to that statement in the sense that this is where sin and the battle for good and evil is happening. And so there, he does extend lordship in a sense that this is where evil is trying to accomplish its end. And so he is lord of all of that action and all of that practice. He has dominion over that. But he is not the one who created any of this. So true dominion of everything and everyone belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. Yeah. So it's a yes and no kind of answer. Yeah. I'm one to not exaggerate the power or lordship of the devil, because the power and lordship of God is so much higher and above that we have no need to fear if we are in league with the Lord. Other things stand out? Other questions? Yes? Well, I, this is the first time I really noticed that all three of these parables mm -hmm. are about the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. So what's your sense of what Jesus is trying to teach about the kingdom of heaven because these are not parables about you know moral lessons, people are going to do this. And it's just like, well, heaven is like this. Hmm. So. Yeah. So in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no, because you know, in heaven, this judgment will have already happened. So when Jesus is talking about these are parables about the kingdom of heaven, a better way to translate that word kingdom, it's basilie in Greek, is the reign of heaven or the reign of God. Now in every other gospel, they use kingdom of God. Matthew is a Jew, and so anytime he sees God, the Lord's name, he tries to change it to something more reverent. So because for Jewish people, it was against, it was blasphemous to even fully say or fully write the name of God even abbreviate it. And so they try and come up with substitution words out of reverence for God's name. And so in Matthew, unique, uniquely, you'll see the phrase kingdom of heaven. But what it really means is the kingdom of God. And a, a translation of that is the reign of God. So what does it mean for God to reign? It means that we are allowing ourselves to respond to God, to have small acts of faithfulness, to be patient and forgiving, so that God can bring abundance and fruitfulness out of these things, so that at the end of time, there will be more people, if not everyone, hopefully, that's the goal, but there will at least be more people on the side of the wheat than there will be on the side of the weeds. So it's really not about what will happen after all of this, like what is heaven like. It is more about what does it look like for God to reign now in our lives on that journey toward heaven. That's a, probably the best understanding when you see that phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Because when they're talking about what heaven is like, they'll just say, you know, in heaven or after death or something like that. Uh, it can be used synonymously, but they're kind of interchangeable in this respect. Yeah, great question. I saw another hand. Margo? The thing that hit me was, um, when it says the Son of Man will send his angels and will collect out of his kingdom all who cause others to sin. And it's almost kind of lost in here with all the proactive behavior. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, we can be doing what we think is okay, but if we're influencing others 
Yes, yeah. And that's why the agricultural analogy of the way that the weed behaves with its roots is so appropriate because the roots attach to the roots of others. So the fact that the weed is present there is influencing the wheat even though we can't see it above the soil. And so I think it says this in 1 Corinthians 12 when it's talking about the body of Christ. It's somewhere around verse 30. It says, if one part of the body suffers, the entire body suffers. And so by relation, if one part of the body sins, that sin has a ripple effect in the entire body of Christ. So there's no such thing theologically as a private sin. You can commit a sin in what you think is a private space, but it will always affect the body of Christ in some way because it affects you and you interact with the body of Christ. No one is isolated. No one has absolutely no effect or influence on anyone else. And so every sin has a ripple effect in the body of Christ. And so it's not that that phrase, who caused scandal to others, is to warn us against the fact that every sin that we commit can cause suffering, scandal, and sin, or the occasion of sin, to others. That we are our brother's keeper, you know, as God guess, asks Cain at the beginning of Scripture. Or as Cain responds, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, you are. <laughs> yes? Okay, one tiny question, another Yes. The name of the weed in English is bearded darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L. The Greek word is zizania, Z-I-Z-A-N-I-A. Okay. I think. I don't really understand exactly the um, the parable of the yeast. Yes. Because it says in the note that the yeast is corruption. It can be interpreted that way sometimes. Okay. Yes. So um, C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is a good virus. So like a virus, it spreads and is contagious, but in a good way. That's how Christianity, authentic Christianity, should act. And so yeast can be used, we see it in the Bible, used as an analogy both for the way that sin can spread like a virus and how Christianity and grace can spread like a good virus. Uh, and so here it's used in a good context. And it's clear from the context that's what it means. Well, what it does is it corrupts the stability of the flower and provokes change. So once yeast enters the flower, the batch, it starts to be activated as a leavening agent and it creates bread. Um, but here, like the, there's a, probably a note in some of your Bibles where three measures of flour is enough to feed about 100 to 150 people. That's a huge amount of abundance for a little bit of yeast. And if you've ever made like, you know, I mean, we all did this during COVID, right? We made our own sourdough starter, right? Everybody did that. Maybe you still have it. You have a name for it, you know, um, whatever it is. Uh, I did it once and I was like, this is too much work. I'm just going to buy bread. Um, but, but I did it, you know, to be part of the experience, you know. But it, it does have this kind of amplification effect. Just from a little bit of flour and water, you can create this like life-sustaining material where you can make bread for the rest of your life if you just keep feeding it a little flour and draining it. And so it's a really incredible thing. And what's interesting, there's another place, I don't think there's a cross-reference here to this in the, in the Bible, it might be in yours, but I, I recognize there's another place where three measures of flour is used. And that's in Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18 is when Abraham and Sarah have a tent, they're, they're living uh, near the Oak of Mamre, and the three strangers come. And Abraham goes out to greet them, and he welcomes them and asks them to stay and prepare something for them to eat. And he goes in and he yells to his wife, Sarah, prepare some food. And it says she uses three measures of flour. This incorrect, like enough to feed 100 to 150 people, to feed these three witnesses or strangers who reveal themselves to be messengers of God. Or you could argue, you can interpret it as the three persons of the Trinity. There are contextual reasons to believe that could also be true. And so this kind of abundant generosity to match the abundant generosity that they are going to announce, because in that meeting, they announced that even in Abraham and Sarah's old age and in their infertility, their inability to produce fruitfulness in life, they are going to welcome a son in the next year named Isaac. And that's where they learn of that, that gift, that miracle of God from those three strangers, out of this willingness to give just a little bit of yeast to these three measures of flour to produce this abundance for them, they produce this abundance in return by announcing the gift of a child. Yeah, so it's, it's an incredible analogy there that God is probably, for people who are faithful Jewish listeners who knew the scriptures really well, 
they probably would have remembered a, a detail like that and have thought, wow, the line of Abraham, the whole reason we are a chosen people who trace their lineage back to our father Abraham in the first kind of a covenant of a Jewish nation, we trace our lineage back to him because of a moment like this, of three measures of flour and a little bit of yeast. So what can happen if we in society are a little bit of yeast to the flour that exists around us? What can we produce if that one action created that huge nation of people and all of these promises that God fulfilled in the land of Israel and the Messiah and the kingdom of David and all the things that are still yet to come? That would have been an incredibly encouraging, really kind of a prophecy of all that Jesus was doing and would continue to do. Other questions? Things that stand out? Greg. Well, you first, in the beginning, before we get to the mustard seed part, yes. there were people that could, that could argue for predestination mm -hmm. between a good seed and a weed. You're always a good seed, you're always a weed. Weeds can't be redeemed, redeemed mm -hmm. like that. Yes. So he gets it to the mustard seed, but to me, it doesn't tie that well together. Like, can't you, can't you convert a weed, a bad weed, into a good weed or a good seed? Well, no, not agriculturally. I mean, I think, but based on the context here, for the parable's sake, I think that's what Jesus is trying to communicate, that like, we don't uproot the, wheat, the, the, the weeds too early because it can corrupt people's free will. It can do damage to the good that is being done because God, as Romans 8 says, all things work for good for those who love God. So God is always seeking to bring good even out of the worst of circumstances. And so we have no right to interfere and there's no reason in God's divine plan for him to abruptly cause some disruption to our free will before his plan comes to fruition at the end of time. And so that patience is part of the frustrating part. Um, so for the soul, can a weed become weed? Absolutely. In planting, no. So that's where the analogy loses a little bit of its comparison ability. But yeah. And I think that's indicated based on the context because then Jesus tells you, look at all these small things that can become something great. Small things that would seem totally insignificant or be even seen as a symbol of corruption like yeast. Look at what it can do. You know, all of these analogies. And the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. It doesn't grow to the largest of all plants, but it's an analogy for look at how this small thing can become something big and beautiful where all the birds of the air dwell. And that actually, it's a quote. I don't know if you noticed this. It becomes a large bush and the quote, birds of the sky become and dwell in its branches, end quote. I don't know if yours has those little extra quotation marks in there. Mine does. Because it's quoting Old Testament prophecies about all of the nations or all of the peoples that will gather under the power and influence of the new Messiah, the one who's promised to come, all these prophets who are coming during exile and during separation and times of civil war in Israel, all of these promises, a lot of them use this language of trees that grow where birds of every kind, meaning like people of all nations of every kind come and gather for shade in its trees. And so even some, something small and insignificant, say, I don't know, a carpenter from backwater town of Nazareth of about 200 people who seems very insignificant, seems like he wouldn't be anyone special, seems like no one would ever record anything historically that he would have done because he only did that for emperors and kings and major wars and historical events. And yet he changed the entire face of society forever because he was God. He was a simple mustard seed, something that seems so insignificant and yet grew into the largest of plants where every bird could come and find shade in his branches. Nick. Um, you know, oftentimes weeds, they can take the resources of the plants around them and kill a plant. Yeah. Now, from their perspective, was this particular type of weed, did it, like the wheat that grew amongst these weeds, was it stronger? So it could be analogous to saying, like, um, the wheat that does grow amongst these weeds stronger than faith, or is it kind of like equalized out? Like, it doesn't really affect the wheat? No, it did. It entangled in its roots. It could corrupt the taste of it. You know, it was, it was very invasive. It could destroy the entire crop. Um, that's why they wait till the end. Because no matter what the weeds do, they'll never be like the wheat. They'll never have the faithfulness of the wheat. But they can appear in the moment to be very looming, to be stronger, to be overwhelming. And it's an analogy for all the moments in life where we feel like 
Like, God, I've been faithful. I'm trying to be the wheat. And why are all these things happening around me? Why are all these people who are doing all this bad stuff seem like they're doing so much better than me? Why does it seem like this Christian walk is so much harder than everyone else who's just living a worldly, secular, sinful life? When are they going to get theirs? You know, have you ever felt that way? Like, you know, we always talk about God's mercy. And then sometimes you look at the world and you're like, yeah, but I want your justice a little bit, please. You know, like pound the gavel a little bit. Like, help people know you're real. Like, but that's not for our time. It's not for up to us to judge. It's not our job to judge. That's the role of Jesus and Jesus alone. It's been given to him by the Father. No one else has that right. Because we don't know until the very end, until the moment of harvest, we can't know definitively if anyone, even ourselves, are a weed or wheat. And so we have to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, hope that we will all end up in that same batch of fruitful flower at the end of time. And do our best to not uproot the weed, to write people off and say, okay, we don't need you anymore. I don't need you in my life. This doesn't mean, it's not the job of the Christian to, to tolerate the intolerable. It doesn't mean you have to tolerate weeds in your life because of this passage and suffer because of them. That's not what it means. You do have to uphold your dignity. You do have to tell the truth. You do have to be willing and able to maybe not associate with people or in certain environments because they're destructive to you or to others. But what we are called to do is to forgive and to be patient with ourselves and with them. Now, to forgive doesn't mean that it makes it okay. If you listen to the Catechism in a Year, Father Mike Schmitz, he's used the past couple of days this great analogy for forgiveness. He says, you know, if, someone, if I let someone borrow my car and they wreck my car, I can tell them, you don't owe me anything. That's me forgiving their debt that they owe me. But I don't have to then say, you can drive my new car. <laughs> because if I were to do that, that would restore them to a level of trust where they are now completely reconciled to me. I don't have to do that to everyone who hurts me. I don't have to do that to everyone who's done me wrong. I am called to forgive, to not hold that debt against them and recognize God is going to turn all things in this world for good. And maybe that act might change them down the line. It might affect them. I don't need to hold on to that. I don't need to hold that grudge against them. But I also don't need to say that it was okay or to restore them to a place of trust or to reconcile with them. But the analogy he makes is he's talking about the sacrament of confession. When we go to confession, we are both always forgiven and reconciled. We're always coming to Jesus saying, I wrecked your car. And Jesus is saying, that's okay, you don't owe me anything. And by the way, here's a new car. All the points have been removed from your driver's license. <laughs> Go forth, drive a little safer next time. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of it. We're not called to extend that same mercy to people because we're not Jesus. But we're also not called to judge them because we're not Jesus. Only he has that ability to extend perfect mercy. That's why he has the ability to extend perfect justice. We can do neither of those things. So we're called to be patient and forgiving the best we can. Alan. Matt, on the parable of the week, um, at the very end, it's going to be judgment day. Mm -hmm. We are, are the, are the, uh, are the, are the weeds. Mm -hmm. Does the weed have a chance until that Judgment Day. I mean, does the weed have a chance to change and to repent yep. and to ask for forgiveness? Until the very last moment. Yes. I don't think that I don't think you're that destitute, Alan. I'm just saying. But just in case. Just in case. <laughs> Luke, yes. In what, verse in 42? The fiery furnace? No, that's in reference to hell. Because it says there, uh, there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. And grinding of teeth is, uh, is an analogy. It's actually used in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen, one of the first deacons, is preaching. And the people who end up stoning him, it says right before that, that they ground their teeth in anger against him. And then anywhere else it says wailing and grinding of teeth, it sometimes says hissing. And so this kind of sounds of hissing and anger. It's just this very visceral manifestation of sin and ugliness toward other people. That's what hell is described as. It's kind of the personification of anger and sin, in a sense. And so that wouldn't be purgatory. Okay, so purgatory, there has been stipulations, you know, or um, not stipulations. Um, what am I trying to say? Descriptions of purgatory that involve fire, like the fire of purification. But uh, the, the catechism does say, I believe in paragraph 1031, 
that the fires of purgatory or the experience of purgatory is entirely different than hell. So we will not confuse the two. They will not be the same. There won't be this kind of experience of, of anger, grinding of teeth, hissing, wailing, very negative connotations. These were things that you could do very negatively to other people, you know, kind of like raising a certain finger to another person. In our culture, it would be hissing or grinding your teeth at someone in that culture would be a kind of equivalent behaviors. Or if you were extending a certain amount of anger or disrespect to someone. Uh, that's what it, what those uh, attitudes would be. So purgatory would not be indicative of that because that's a place of purification on the way to heaven. So even though it might not be comfortable, it might involve some pain in purgation and uh, detaching ourselves from the attachments uh, of worldly pleasures and sin, uh, it won't be anything compared to the punishment of hell. It's a purgatory night. I always like when we talk about purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> So I noticed in the East Parable, they didn't mention like water, mention like bread. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also with like seeds to the water. But what would you say like the water is from Hmm, that's great. Yeah, water is not mentioned in either. So what is the water? Um, I mean, this is just my own opinion or speculation because there's nothing in the text. But um, water is a, a very good symbol for prayer. Because just like you need to cultivate anything, you need to cultivate a daily relationship with God. So just like we need air, we need oxygen to breathe, we also need water to survive. Um, and so it's uh, analogous to prayer. You could say it's similar to baptism, but this doesn't imply that someone needs to first be baptized in order to make an act of repentance. In fact, that would precede baptism. You need to show that you're repenting and turning away from an old life in order to submit yourself to baptism. So I would say it's probably a representation of what God is pouring into us, the grace that, and the love he's pouring into us, that blossoms into some kind of prayer and relationship with him that then leads to a life in him, which is baptism. So, but that's just an example of what the water could be. So, no. But it's a good point because in all of these situations, none of these things would be possible to happen naturally without some kind of assistance. You know, some kind of water, someone there planting, cultivating, harvesting, making the bread. So there's always that involved. There's always some kind of action involved. Like faith doesn't happen by accident. You know, we're not going to suddenly get to the end of our life and then the judgment comes and Jesus says like, all right, you chose to be in separation from me. And we're not going to, what? Really? What? I did? Or he's not going to be like, oh, you chose to be in complete relationship with me. What? I did? What? I didn't realize that. I was just... Just kind of hanging out. Like, we're not going to be surprised when it's revealed. It will be completely apparent to us. But we have to kind of get out of that phase of denial that we can sometimes slip into and think, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Because how does this end? Whoever has ears ought to hear. Raise your hand if you have ears. Okay, that means these parables apply to you, okay? Whoever has ears ought to hear. That's good. That was a little late there, Jonathan, but you do have ears. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, yes, all of us, every single one of us, this is for us. We don't escape this. We don't get to a certain level of holiness that we no longer have to worry about this. We are all sinners. Let me rephrase that. We are all saints in the making who struggle with sin. We're all saints in the making who struggle with sin. Because yes, we are sinners, but we, God does not identify us by our sin. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, you are a thief, you are a robber. He says, you are my child who has struggled with this sin of robbery or this sin of thievery. But you're still my child. That's who you're created to be. And if we can remember that identity and make good choices and pursue faithfulness to him each and every day in small ways, then all of a sudden we'll realize, we'll look down and look how far we've come. I'll never forget, I'll end with this, that um, the only time I've ever been to Yosemite, I was with my wife. I think this was before we were married. Maybe, I don't remember, but I was with my wife and her family and her godparents. We stayed in all these tent cabins, and we did the hike up to, to Vernal uh, and, and uh, the other one, Nevada Falls. Yeah, whatever order they happen in. And there's lots of these wet stone steps if you've ever been there. And a lot of these people have done this, had done this hike before, but a lot of them had grown a little bit older since the last time they had done it. And all of a sudden, there was uh, some problems with knees happening with some people in our group. And this, this, this hike became this like very slow motion trek upward, just one step at a time. Sometimes it was 10 steps, then we sat back down. You know, a few steps, we sat back down. And it seemed so painstaking at the time. And yet, with patience and forgiveness, 
we made it to the top. We got to experience the beauty of this vista, have lunch up there together, and make our slow way back down. We still made it to the top. It didn't matter how fast or how big the steps were, we made the steps. The same thing is true of the Christian life. You don't need to sprint up to the top of the falls to enjoy the vista. You'll enjoy the vista in heaven one day as long as you keep going, one step at a time. And if maybe there's a whole day or a whole season of your life where you just have to sit down because you just can't go anymore, that's okay. But get up, take one more step, sit back down if you have to, keep going. The devil wants to convince you that there's no use in trying. The weeds are already entangled. You're already being corrupted. There's too much difficulty, struggle, and sin going on around you. You're never going to make it. And that is the biggest lie that anyone can ever tell you. Because it only takes a mustard seed. It only takes a little leaven. And we all have that. Every single one of us. No one in this room is disqualified from these parables. And no one is disqualified from the promises that these parables offer if we just allow God to work in us in our small yes every day. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of scripture, the gift of this time and community. And we pray, Lord, that these words would, would be written on our hearts. They would resonate in us and inspire us to deeper faith throughout the course of this week. Help us to be faithful to you and to be patient and forgiving to others. And to recognize it only takes a small act of, of saying yes to you each day to stay on this path of virtue. And in that small yes, you can do incredible things. It's never too late. And so help us, Lord, if we are discouraged, if we feel bogged down on this journey of faith, to just recognize that the past is behind us, but that we still have a future. We are saints who struggle with sin, and so help us to continue on that path of sainthood one step at a time. We pray all this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much.